Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel comics on sale December 1st, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. That just hit me that, like, we are officially in December. How did we do that? <laughs> How you feeling? How's it going? I feel good. We've got the tree up. We've got decorations oh, awesome. slowly going up. It's great. How about you? Oh, you know, things are just, you know, plodding along over here. I recently went to the opera. Ooh. Yeah, I went to the Met. I had a whale of a time. It was great. This is not the show about opera. It is the official Marvel podcast where we talk about all the brand new Marvel comics out this week. We're going to give our picks of the week as well as give out a bunch of awards. Then we'll talk about the stuff hitting Marvel Unlimited, including new Infinity Comics, as well as the collections on sale this week. And then we have a reading club with a special guest. What's our reading club this week? This week, we're chatting with stand-up comic. You might have seen him in a million different places, maybe even at a live theater near you. Daniel Sloss is on the show, and we're talking about Ultimates. That's 2002. Uh, We're digging into that first arc, but we're really talking about the full 13-issue run. There's so much to dive into, a lot of Scotland chat. Yeah, I was going to say, a lot of Scotland love. (laughs) If we have any Scottish listeners, please let us know. I know we have a bunch of listeners all across the world, but I haven't heard from anyone from Scotland. Yeah, yeah. A bunch of talk about all that kind of stuff. And you know what? Crucially, a crucial tie-in here is uh, a lot of Brian Hitch talk, which Mm -hmm. is very appropriate given the new ish of Venom that we'll be touching on very soon. Indeed. Speaking of the new issues, let's dive in with our first pick of the week, which is Avengers number 50, aka Avengers number 750, if you're talking about legacy numbering. But it is the 50th issue of Avengers written by Mr. Jason Aaron. And hot damn, this is an issue built for me because it is about 96 pages. It opens up with a story about the orb a.k.a. one of Jason Aaron's favorite characters, and I'm a big fan of all the weird Marvel characters. The Orb is a dude with a giant eyeball for a head. And of course, he shows up in this landmark issue. It's got time travel. It's got multiversal versions of characters. It's just such a celebratory love letter to what the Avengers can be while also pushing forward, while also exploring everything that's been going on for the past four years in Avengers comics. Um, I have to give the credits to this big 750th issue of Avengers. It is by Jason Aaron, Aaron Cooter, Carlos Pacheco, Rafael Frontiers, Ed McGinnis, and Javier Garon, with colors by Alex Sinclair, David Curiel, Matt Hollingsworth, and Rochelle Rosenberg. There's a beautiful two-page vertical cutaway of Avengers Mountain. Uh, It is beautiful. It's by David Baldeon and Israel Silva. And then there's a wild little bonus story by Christopher Ruicchio and Steve McNiven with colors by Frank D'Armada. It is a young Arthur from uh, Myth and Legend, as well as Thor, and it's a beautiful story. But of course, The big meat and potatoes, the 90-ish so pages in here, written by Jason with just incredible art throughout, sets up the new Avengers Forever title in beautiful ways. We saw this a little bit in Free Comic Book Day, establishing this brand new Masters of Evil, but it's multiversal. It is epic in scope. It is spanning millions of years, an infinite number of worlds, I would imagine. It is huge. It's got a version of Doctor Doom, which is like taking everything we love about Doom, but then making him somehow more Doom? 
And it's so good. A version of Thanos and a Dark Phoenix, a, a messed up version of Red Skull and more. I won't give away the, all the characters in it, but it is wild. Beautiful, beautiful art, as I said. Aaron Cooter coming in here and just like showing off how great he is every time he steps into a book. Carlos Pacheco reminding us he's a legend, drawing a great mustache on a really gross version of Howard Stark, among other cool things. Kazar being sort of thrust around in time, Jane Foster Valkyrie. There's a million great things about this. Go check it out. Everything about this is awesome as hell. I absolutely loved it. I can't wait for Avengers Forever. I can't wait for all the like the threads that are sort of introduced in this to pay off because you know they will because Jason Aaron is one of the greatest. 100%. Absolutely. I totally, totally agree. And there's another issue here that I feel like a lot of threads are being tied up and wrapped up. And then a lot are being, you know, left unanswered. And that's Daredevil number 36. That's my pick this week. It's written by Chip Zdarsky with pencils on this one by Manuel Garcia, inks by Cam Smith, Scott Hanna, and Victor Nava, colors by Marcio Meniz and Brian Valenza, and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. Also a couple of beautiful variants on this one I want to shout out. One by Marco Ketto, longtime Daredevil uh, main series artist alongside Matthew Wilson, and another one by Dan Panosian. They're both wonderful. This is the finale of this run on Daredevil. What the future holds for the series for Matt is obviously up in the air, obviously as well. A lot of that is tied right into Devil's Reign, which is going to be a very, very, very big deal in the months ahead. But that's all in the future. That's all that we have to look forward to. In this issue, there are so many different threads that I think Chip is juggling here at the same time. And I, for me, that is sort of the definition of this run as a whole. It has been managing so many different stories, all of which are so deeply fascinating and really ultimately really complicated. So that's the big level stuff. And I can't talk enough about how much I love this series. It is so wonderful. It has been such a ride. And I'm happy that so much of the creative team and the the minds behind this are moving straight into Devil's Reign. They're deep into it now, and it'll be hitting your shelves very soon. But to talk about the story that's going on in here, we really have a couple of big threads. We have Daredevil getting out of jail. He's been in there for a while now, and Elektra has taken the mantle. So Matt gets out, and uh, there's a really beautiful few pages that are just sort of those two characters dealing with all that's happened since they've been separated. Can't go through this issue without talking, though, about a little shot of Matt Murdock's little butt. In, in this ish, uh, as he and Electra go for a dip. But that's just sort of the beginning, and the issue continues in full force as we go forward. The other big thing that I want to talk about, though, in terms of plot here is the number one nightmare couple in the Marvel Universe now, Typhoid Mary and Wilson Fisk. Wow, what a absolutely disturbing duo. It's great. There's big payoffs, but there's still so much to deal with. And I'm so excited to have Devil's Reign continue to explore all of these storylines and more. Um, but in that way and in so many more is so worthy of being the final issue of what has been a fantastic run. And, you know, it does the rare thing of like finishing a, a total run and doing what Chip clearly wanted to do over the course of his take on Daredevil, but also leaving the door open to so much more that we've yet to see. Yeah. 
big shout outs to thick ginger beard Matt Murdock. Yeah. That that look is real good. And the Typhoid Mary Kingpin stuff, every time they're like together in this this way, reminds me back to Anne Nascenti and John Romita Jr.'s run. And there's that scene in Wilson's office where they're like flirting and she sets his jacket on fire and he just tosses the jacket. And then they, they sort of pan out and you know they are just getting down. Yeah. Like we talked yeah. to Chip about his love of that run. So it all makes perfect sense. Speaking of the beard, like so many times I was like, I just flashed to D-Man in my head because it's that thick, thick ginger beard. It's nice. Give us Dennis Dumphy <laughs> right now. Bring yeah. him Dennis to Dumphy, the floor. D-D. The, the D-D on the chest means something different. Ooh. Doesn't mean Daredevil. It means Dennis Dumphy. <laughs> okay. Well, our last of the three picks for this week is New Mutants number 23. It's written by Vita Ayala with art by Rod Reese. And VC's Travis Lanham does the letters. I got to give a shout out to Martin Simmons making... One of the gnarliest, just I don't like this covers that is so good at the same time. It's just, it's all the New Mutants characters as little dolls. It's upsetting. Martin Simmons, thank you for doing it. It's really good. It's very striking. It's exactly what a cover should be. It grips you and pulls you in and makes you want to read the book. And so this issue, it really brings ahead to a whole bunch of stuff. The the mentorship that the like the classic New Mutants characters have had over the younger crew. It has uh, a lot of Shadow King stuff in here. It has wild art from Rod. Like the whole book looks absolutely unlike anything else you're going to pick up right now. There's so, so much raw emotion and mental anguish on the page from characters. And it comes across so well in Rod's work. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Ink splotches and scratchy images and terrifying villains and beautiful full-page splashes and two-page splashes, wild battle scenes, nightmare versions of characters showing up. I think Vita and Rod are showing that they are such a, a fantastic duo together and they're, they sort of embody what they've been talking about with the characters in the run. A lot of what the characters have been doing is combining their powers and, and really elevating the ways that they work together. And and I think that's Rod and, and Vita. The two of them come together and make some really beautiful, sometimes scary, sometimes upsetting art. And it's a book that skirts that line of big Marvel superhero title while also being, you know, very sort of okay in its very weird artistic side that you may not expect from an X-Men book. It also harkens back to classic New Mutants in that way. It's really just damn terrific. Yeah, I totally agree. It's a beautiful, beautiful issue. And, and, and I think it actually folds really nicely into the first issue that we're talking about for all of the new Marvel comics coming your way this week, which is Amazing Spider-Man number 80, because there's actually, this feels visually at least, like a new mutancy type take on Amazing Spider-Man. And I think in terms of the canonical, like historical touchstone visual palettes of Marvel comics, like obviously Sienkiewicz style, like new mutants, scratchy, weird, dark, 
that's on one side. I think you can put Amazing Spider-Man, obviously it at times can get into that, but you know, it's also the superhero book of all superhero books. You know what I mean? So it's really interesting and, and striking when it does dive into that angle. This issue is written by Cody Ziegler, who again, just cannot shout his name enough from the rooftops. Not only is his dialogue great, the story that he's telling is great. And obviously he's telling that story alongside the rest of the Beyond board. This is a bigger team that's shepherding this Ben Riley story along. But you can tell that he has a really great command in terms of very clearly scripting really inventive panels, really inventive pages, really specific imagery, specific visual language that emerges over the course of an issue. And I think this is a really huge testament to him as a writer. Michael Dowling is the artist who crushes it. It is absolutely gorgeous. So to that visual palette that we have in this issue, I will be handing out the Dennis Dunphy medal for her suit beefcakes because it's just a beautiful thing to look at. All right, next up is Captain Marvel number 34. Captain Marvel right now is so good. This book is so good and it's so consistent. It's wonderful stuff. Kelly Thompson and crew are just crushing it. This is the middle of the last of the Marvel's storyline, which puts Carol up against uh, Vox Supreme, who is a big old jerk who's haunted her for a little while. This one takes her, like kind of pushing her to her limit by what Vox throws against her or who Vox throws against her. If you haven't seen some of the variant covers or don't know what's going on, I will leave it at that. But this is a big emotional battle issue as much as it is a physical one. I will give my Dennis Dumphy medal for her sweet beefcakes <laughs> to Carol's leveling up in here and her like finding that next phase of her powers and abilities in order to push herself further. I think that's one of my favorite things when we see a hero figure out what they can do in order to get past the their problems and get past their adversaries. It's rad in here. I'm excited to see how that's used in the future. We are next up we have uh, another of what has been an incredible run of books with these Darkhold issues. The next one is Darkhold Black Bolt number one. This Black Bolt issue is a great reminder for me of just what an excellent, great character Black Bolt is. The innate conflict of this character, not just in terms of the powers that he holds, but in terms of the rest of the royal family of Inhumans. You know, it's just like this is a one issue snapshot of this character, of this time, of this corner of everything that's going on. And for me, it just serves as something so much bigger than that, which I really, really love. So my DDM for HBs goes to Mr. BB himself, Black Agar Boltagon. All right, next up is Darkhawk number four. It's getting my Dennis Dumphy medal for Here Swoot Beefcakes award because it teams up Darkhawk with not just Miles Morales, which in and of itself is fantastic and is a lot of fun, but also for Captain America coming into the mix and how it happens. It's great. I think Kyle Higgins is just having a blast on this book and this character and really establishing this new Darkhawk as a character who has no idea what he's involved in, but is trying his best and is making the right friends and and making decisions that will hopefully help him become a better superhero. I I want everybody to check out the first issue. It's either on Marvel Unlimited now or will be soon. Definitely uh, a hoot. I think this one is my favorite of the run so far. Nice. Uh, Next up, we have Death of Doctor Strange, Spider-Man number one. 
And my Dennis Dunphy medal for her sued beefcakes goes to penciler Marcelo Ferreira because, oh my God, he is not holding back. It's all on the page here from Marcelo. It is gorgeous. Shout out to Wayne Foucher on inks and Andrew Crossley with Peter Pantazis on colors as well, because this is a gorgeous, gorgeous issue. And the biggest compliment I can give it really, because this is written by Jed McKay, is that it looks the way it feels to read a Jed McKay issue. His writing is so full of energy, emotion. It's just so fast paced. And to have art that complements it is a really big deal. Marcelo absolutely crushes this issue. And then like, shout out to the best editors in the biz for some wonderful casting in terms of just putting that writer and that artist together on this book. Yeah. Another gorgeous book is Death of Doctor Strange, White Fox, number one. And um, it's got great art by Andy Tong in the front and the, the back of it. But Luciano Vecchio, friend of the show, just comes in and does some gorgeous, weird, wonderful stuff in here with White Fox. And this issue feels really big. There's a lot of things that happen in this issue for White Fox, for Swordmaster, for sort of their their teams and their comrades, the Tiger Division, the Agents of Atlas, people involved in their stories. The death of Doctor Strange affects um, Agents of Atlas and Tiger Division, Tiger Division being Korea's sort of national superhero team, uh, their quote unquote version of the Avengers. And they're just fighting off mystical, nasty, weird creatures left and right. And then that is tied up into uh, White Fox's history and her family history and her being the last of the Kumiho and all kinds of really cool stuff. It's a sweet issue in in a couple of the conversations. It's sad in a, in a bunch of like the big revelatory moments. And it's wonderfully action-packed. It's a good one. I definitely would suggest this one if you want to just get a taste of some of these characters who are on the periphery of, of mainstream Marvel superheroes. Absolutely. And not to force a metaphor here, but I think like the death of Doctor Strange time issues is sort of a really interesting example of just how malleable a story like that is because we have a Ben Riley like Spider-Man version of it or a White Fox issue, but it all fits in so wonderfully with the story that's being told there. I think of that sort of similar dynamic with everything that's been going on in Fantastic Four and my Dennis Dumphy medal for her suit beefcakes goes to the number one her suit king. Dan Salat, because listener, if you haven't tuned into our uh, reading club with writer Dana Schwartz, I would highly recommend doing that because who pops in but Mr. Slot himself, a friend of Dana's, obviously a friend of our show. And in that conversation, Dan teases, uh, I think, the events of this issue and beyond, which is getting to see Jen Walters in a Fantastic Four book. We get to see Jen in the courtroom here. It is so much fun. Where I was at the start of this discussion of Fantastic Four number 38 is ultimately what's so impressive about the work that Dan's doing here is you can tell one how much he loves these characters, how much he loves those very specific moments in Fantastic Four history, like Jen Walters joining the team for a brief period of time. But he's pushing the envelope. He is having fun. He is doing weird things. He is going further. He's introducing new characters. He's not holding back. He's not just playing the hits. He's really testing himself. He's testing these characters. He's testing the limits of what a Fantastic Four book can be. And I just want to sing this this series praises from the rooftops. It feels ultimately like he's always taking risks. And I love that about him. I love that about this series. 
Hell yeah. All right, we've got Marvel's number six out this week, and this is a deep dive into the character Lady Lotus. She is this uh, sort of criminal mastermind who has um, erected this crazy dome over Siang Kong, but we don't know much about her, and this is the full sort of origin story, history. I will give my Dennis Dumphy medal for Here Swoops Beefcakes award to Kurt Busiek for just being so incredibly Marvel knowledgeable, which we know because that's the point of this book. Like he's up there with your Tom Brevorts and, and those who just, their brain is a Marvel machine and how he puts Lady Lotus into the Marvel universe and seeds her in, but makes her her own very strong and very empathetic character is, is really cool. Yes. Next up, we have Marauders number 26. Lest we forget that Jerry is still delivering some of the best comics around with Marauders. Writer Jerry Duggan is still crushing this series. And hey, it's a big week for burly, powerful dudes with powerful, burly ginger beards because we get another one here with Harry Leland, who plays a big part in this issue in particular. Not to be outdone, we get the recipient of my Dennis Dumphy Medal for Beefcakes, which is Fin Fan Foom. I mean, we get Fin Fan Foom in this issue, and basically you can never top that for me. I will love that no matter what kind of story. There's so many different characters. There's so many different complicated, really wonderful, cool things happening. Everybody has their own agenda. Everybody is pushing in a different direction. But of course, when that big green guy shows up, I'm just going to, I love it. Uh, We've got Phoenix Song Echo number two out this week, which gets my Dennis Dunphy medal for Hirsute Beefcakes for the antagonist in here, which is one that I was like, oh, cool. It's a great use of a character, someone who maybe not every Marvel reader will know, but I think this is a cool series to bring them into and and make them really scary and involved in a story where they, they feel like a huge threat and get involved in the current Phoenix, aka Echo's story. It's got beautiful art. It's got really cool stuff and, and emotional beats in here as Echo Um, is sort of brought into her past in her timeline, her family timeline, in ways that if you put yourself in her shoes, what would you do in those situations? It's something I thought about when I was reading this, and I think you will too. Next up, we are going over to the Star Wars universe for a couple of issues, the first of which is Bounty Hunters number 18. In War of the Bounty Hunters, obviously a ton went down across the board, but a lot happened to Valance coming out the other side of that, now merging back into his own tendril of the Star Wars universe, his own storyline as we go out. It's going to be really interesting to see what feels like could be a, a turning point in this character's life. Who really knows? Because in this issue, he is sort of reconstructed, reborn under the auspices of Darth Vader himself. My Dennis Dunphy Medal for Soup Beefcakes Award, though, goes to a bit of this story that is absolutely inappropriate for a medal so-called that, because it's like a really touching, beautiful flashback in time that provides some just a really wonderful moment of connection for you as the reader, where you are able to reach into this character's heart, and it reminds you of the character at stake. So that part of the story gets my my DD award. 
Yeah. Also in the Star Wars universe is Star Wars Darth Vader number 18. And I'm going to give my Dennis Dunphy medal for Hirsute Beefcakes to this full page splash. In the middle of the issue, it has Darth Vader having just come out of his TIE fighter in like a super kind of heroic pose. So the way he's standing is cape billowing in the wind and a bunch of like regular civilians looking up at him. The caption says, this is the hero we've been waiting for. And I love that like twist on how people will see Vader if they just, they don't know who this guy is. They don't know what his story is. They don't know much with the Empire in this part of the the universe and the galaxy. Uh, it's a great shot by Leonard Kirk. And we look, we've been big fans of what Greg Pak has been doing on this book for the last year and a half or so. It's a lot of fun. Coming back out of Star Wars and into Marvel, we have Venom number two. Every single turn of this story feels so enormous in terms of import. I think seeing these very, very delicate moments occur for a character like Dylan Brock is harrowing. Obviously, so much of it is down to just the pure writing, the way that it's presented to us, the way that we get to read it, the way that, in the case of this issue, Ram V is presenting the story. Brian Hitch, obviously, who we will be talking about soon with our Ultimates Reading Club, is just an absolute modern Marvel master, gorgeous stuff. It is such a joy. It is such a pleasure to read these issues. With that in mind, my uh, Dennis Dunphy medal for Soup Beefcakes goes to young Dylan Brock because he's come a long way in a very short period of time, but it still feels like we are barely scratching the surface with this character. And everything that's happening with him right now is going to be really, really, really big deal in the years to come. Yeah. All right, we've got Warhammer 40,000 Sisters of Battle number four out this week. Uh, I will give my Dennis Dunphy medal for Hirsute Beefcakes to the final line in the book. I don't want to give it away, but it's got a the call is coming from inside the house vibe to me. Torin, going back, just we love her. She's great. Here, she just gets to write about horrible things happening to so many people and headbutts and exploding bodies and just nasty ways of of killing each other in in the service of a god in rebellion to a god and all kinds of wild stuff i don't know anything about the warhammer 40,000 universe other than it's gross it's got like everybody <laughs> just is like full of wild armaments and cool costumes and trying to kill each other every second of the day. Oh yeah. My final issue this week arrives in the form of winter guard number four, which is the uh, finale of this limited series. And uh, my Dennis Dunphy medal for suit beefcakes goes to the feeling that this book gave me, which was as I was reading this ending issue, it felt light. It felt quick. It was moving by at such a great brisk pace. It had that sort of Jed McKay feel and he's making it such a signature thing to himself. So shout out to writer Ryan Katie, because I think that's a big achievement to not only have that feeling, but also to have the dramatic moments feel like they're paying off. You're not, you know, ignoring that at all. It just feels so digestible and so fun to read nonetheless. Uh, so I think striking that balance is always, always difficult, but uh, shout out to Ryan for, for pulling it off. I think really, really wonderfully. So DDM for HBs goes to him. All right. Last of our new books this week is X-Men, the trial of Magneto number four. I will give the Dennis Dunphy medal for hirsute beefcakes to a pretty much hairless beefcake gambit. It's, 
It's Gambit pulling off his shirt after coming back from a little shopping trip with Rogue. And he says, attended Rogue, gonna ride that big fella like a four-wheeler. <sighs> I felt dirty even saying it. But truly, the most important stuff in here is all revolving around Scarlet Witch, a.k.a. Wanda Maximoff, and her her everything that's been going on in here. She was killed in the Hellfire Gala, and we're trying to figure out who killed her throughout all this. By the end of this issue, we are very close to finding it out, so much so that someone who, with intimate knowledge of the subject, says that they know who did it, and then that's our cliffhanger. It's a cool series. This is one of those I think will be an exceptional read all the way through once it's all completed. All right, jumping out of fresh floppies this week, why don't you head over to the Marvel Unlimited app where you'll be able to read two brand new Infinity Comics, and those are Fantastic Four number four and a new number one, Spider-Bot number one. Yeah. Um, And then also on Marvel Unlimited this week, we've got uh, issue six of Alien, Avengers Annual number one, Cable Reloaded one, which rules. Uh, As I mentioned earlier in the show, the first issue of Darkhawk is now actually in Marvel Unlimited. So definitely check that out. A whole bunch of other stuff. And we also want to point out how to read comics the Marvel way. It's coming to you in four issues. You can check that out on Marvel Unlimited. It's pretty neat. All right, wrapping things up this week with the collections section, looking this week towards Conan the Barbarian Epic Collection, the original Marvel Years. Queen of the Black Coast is coming in trade paperback as well. Arriving in trade paperback is Spider-Man Worlds Collide. All right, let's head on over to our reading club, which is once again with comedian Daniel Sloss talking about the Ultimates run by Mark Miller and uh, Brian Hitch and... Look, we're going to throw lots of love for Scotland into this episode. If you're not here for it, (laughs) TFB. Let's talk about it. Tucker, let's get into it. We're going to be talking about the ultimates with our guest on this reading club this week, Mr. Daniel Sloss. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. I was very excited to talk about this book. It's been a while since I read them, but I promise you, I have read and do love these books. <laughs> I have so many questions for you, Daniel, but to start in like the most basic place, I love talking to any guests that we're ever lucky enough to have that aren't from the States, because first and foremost, I love hearing about their experience reading comics growing up and what that was like, because a lot of the times it's a pretty unusual pathway that people have to take to even get the stuff. Oh, it wasn't easy. Like there was no comic book shops near me. My dad was desperate for me to get into comics from a young age because he's he grew up a nerd and he's still a nerd. And like I got into like football, soccer and other sports. And he was like, how on earth is like a nerd raised a job? This is the opposite <laughs> of what I wanted. He was mad into 2018, like saw the like Judge Dredd and stuff like that. And then when Spider-Man, the original Spider-Man came out, like I was hooked. Like that was just the best thing. I was like, oh my God, like I need to know every single thing about this universe. There was the ultimate Spider-Man started coming out and it was the only comic book available in like our local news agents because it was quite popular. So I bought that religiously. And then started getting a little bit more into them, but there was no real choices. And it wasn't until I started performing at the Edinburgh Festival. And one of my publicists in my first year 
tried to like lure me into comic book shops because he was a big comic book nerd. And like I, I remembered my childhood. I was like, oh, I remember enjoying them, but like I was a kid then and like I'm 18, 19 now. And he was like, did you just say comics are for kids? And I was like, yeah, they're for kids. And he was like, oh, you're okay. And then he bought me like Alan Moore's The Killing Joke and was like, you read that and you tell me if this is for kids. And then <laughs> I was hooked. Again, every bit of money I got from a gig, I would just go to the comic book shop the next day and just buy and consume everything. And then I got more excited by the Marvel Universe. And it was really hard because I'd want to start the story from the start and then get to the end. But like, that's not possible if you're joining. Like, you know, you've got to really hope that they come out with something like the ultimate Spider-Man and they go, right, we're going to start this from the start. Otherwise, you know, I was joining in Hawkeye halfway through. And I mean, I guess that's what you're meant to do. But I found it so frustrating originally. I was like, where's issue number one? They're like, that's rare. That's an insane thing to ask. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, right, okay. I'll... And that's when I started getting more into the graphic novels. I, I don't really buy issues, single issue comics. It was always graphic novels for me because I could eat those in a chunk. One, Daniel, where exactly are you from? And then two, I think maybe closely related to that, you mentioned being a football fan. This is another thing I rarely get to talk about with guests or on the show at all. What team did you support growing up? So I grew up in a place called Fife, and I live in Edinburgh now. And I basically, I've got three teams. I've got East Fife, which is my local team. Who I mean, I, I say this all the time. I haven't seen East Fife play in, I'm going to say, at least 10 years because <laughs> they play at a really gross place where I used to grow up. <laughs> not that the stadium's not gross, but the time they play this. My Scottish team is Hibernian, but my big main team is I'm a, I'm a Chelsea fan because I'm a horrible human being. And all horrible people support Chelsea. Yeah. We found common ground there. Who do you support? I'm a, a long-suffering Arsenal fan since 2005. Oh, man, then it's a pleasure to meet you. What <laughs> absolute... Oh, I love Arsenal fans. You must be sad all the time. It's so good. <laughs> so many comedians, so many British comedians, it's a disproportionate amount of them are Arsenal fans. It's extra joyous when they do badly for me. <laughs> <laughs> you had talked about diving in from the beginning of a story and the desire to do that. And it's something I, I connect with so, so deeply currently. And listeners to our show will, will know I've probably talked about it too much is like I got back into Transformers this year. And then I was like, I want to read the Transformers comics. And so like diving back into stories and even then it's like they started in 84, but then they added stories like within the last three years that are prequels to all that. And then there's mythology and then there's multiple pathways. And it's like, that's a manageable thing, but coming into the Marvel universe and like wanting to do that when you have history that goes to 1939 and then there's multiple universes and all that stuff. I always remember like, there's everyone's own storyline in Marvel. And I started to understand that. And I was like, okay, I can just like pick my favorite. And I loved the Punisher. And I always loved the concept of the Punisher. And then there was, they did like a couple of good crossovers with Deadpool and I always enjoyed those. And then I always heard about like Secret Wars and Infinity War and all of these things. And I was like, what are these? And then I would buy like Spider-Man Civil War and then I would read the whole thing. And I'm like, I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, it's just Spider-Man's perspective of Civil War. Oh, now I've got to go and read the Avengers version of it. And you, which I now enjoy because, you know, now that I understand it's about one event and once you know what the event is, it is very cool. So you're, but when you're starting, you're like, what is this game? Yeah. <laughs> you, you mentioned that that Ultimate's was like really popular at the time. Obviously it was a popular comic 
everywhere. The Ultimates and, you know, that corner of the Marvel Universe in general was a big hit. Was it, like, particularly popular in Scotland? And was it, like, maybe there's something Scottish about the Ultimates or about the sensibility of that kind of comic that might connect with either you just as a young age or might be the reason behind the fact that it's the one comic available at the shop instead of Amazing Spider-Man or or X-Men or one of the, you know, more standard ones? I think the Ultimate series, like the Ultimate Spider-Mans, they were just the ones. Like There was a shop called John Menzies back in the day. They didn't stock much, but they had 2000 AD there, and then they had... You know what? I think they might have actually had other ones now that I think about it, but like the Ultimate Spider-Man was always, it was always in such a glossy bit of paper. It was, and I just remember it looked shiny and looked professional, and I, I used to get so frustrated whenever they changed artists, which now as an adult I really like. I don't know if it was popular through the rest of Scotland. I imagine it was, since it was the only ones that they stocked. But the reason I moved towards the Ultimates was because I love Mark Miller and Mark Miller's Scottish. And it was the fact that, you know, I was like, oh, cool, there's a Scottish guy. I mean, I, I love Wanted. I love Kick-Ass. I love most of his work, if not all of it. And then I was like, oh, this guy does Marvel. Like, that's, I want to see, like, a Scottish perspective, see what my people have done with it. And when I was rereading it, man, it's, I was really laughing at some of the lines in it. Mark Miller's a very, very funny man. And I loved his take on just of Captain America. Like, he's a bit of an <laughs> Like, he really enjoys killing Nazis as well. Like, it's not just for the good, but he loves beating up Nazis. And he thinks it's brilliant when they die. And he'll make fun of them. And he's a bit toxic. It was a very refreshing, fun take for me. I think that's one of the, the things that I love, is that they weren't afraid to make Captain America a little bit more abrasive and maybe of his time in a different way. And like, you know, you bring that sort of 1940s growing up in the depression and all kinds of messed up upbringing. And we love the super sweet, wonderful Captain America we know, but this one, yeah, he's just the worst. This is like a very, to your point, Daniel, it's, it's, it's a very mature book not just in terms of the actual dialogue or content or like character perspectives and things like that, but literally in terms of just how you read it, the reading experience itself, because it's very sparse. I mean, especially when you start in that first issue, there's so many different pages that have like one or two words on them, period. And it's such an immersive experience and it's a purely visual experience in that way. I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that like, you even had the awareness at a young age to clock the fact that like a different artist was on a book. Cause I feel like a lot of the times people who are young and picking up comics for the first time don't even really have time to think about that. You're just immersed in the plot or in the story and having an appreciation for the artist comes later. I was just curious about how that affected you, about your thoughts on that, about your journey as a comic book fan, not just in terms of the character and the story, but for your appreciation for the art itself. I, I thought Spider-Man was cool, but in the Ultimate Spider-Man, like he just looked class. I loved the artwork, and every time they like there were crossovers, like some of the X-Men people would come in, and I just remember I loved the glossy look of it all the time. Like I thought, you know, you want your superheroes to look cool. Like it's not until you're later on where you want them to be, you know, gritty hard asses, and you like you let that's why you like the Punisher. You wanted Spider-Man to go around in different costumes. And every time he got a new one, that was sick. You're like, oh, God, he's got some venom in him this time. And I think when I was younger, I much preferred like more realistic looking stuff a little bit just because it made it easier to imagine. Whereas now, now I'm more plot 
terrific and artwork is a bonus. Sometimes I have to slow myself down. Comics are at 50% at least the artwork. Like the reason you enjoy them is because, you know, somebody incredibly talented has spent, you know, hours on this one panel. The least you could do is look at it. That's a great point, yeah. Yeah, let's dive into that. We'll talk about the creative team here for Ultimates. We mentioned Mark Miller, the writer, with pencils by Brian Hitch, colors by Paul Mounts, inks by Andrew Curie, and letters by our pal Chris Eliopoulos, edited by friend of the show, Ralph Macchio. Ralph has been on our show a couple of times, and he's been part of Marvel for like 35, 40 years. And we've talked to him about working with Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby and, and how he was involved in What If and Ultimates and, and pretty much anything the eternals it's it's pretty cool so seeing ralph yeah his name in here is is neat you mentioned the art and uh brian hitch man i forgot how gorgeous this book looks hitch and mounts together really it's paul mounts is an incredible colorist there are some wild beautiful widescreen vistas and shots and this the term cinematic for comics really, really, I think, started to get used more and more after <laughs> Ultimates came out, because it's just gorgeous. I, I wanted to jump back to the first issue, though. Going through it again, it's like the first issue is like 90% flashback to World War II. It's establishing of Captain America and just a little hint right at the end of the modernness. It's such a ballsy first issue for a major flagship launch title. I'm still to this day like surprised and thrilled that that's how they did it and that people were like, yeah, this is awesome because it was, it's gorgeous. And the cover has the team on it. You don't get that team in the first issue. It's wild. It slowly spoon feeds you like, you know, Cap America. Also, I love the Germans in this. I found the dialogue between the, like, they're just saying, oh my God, all the time. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just very panicky Nazis running away from Captain America. You could get away with it now, but it, that's the point. Captain America's not wearing a parachute. And like in the movies, he's not wearing a parachute. He jumps out, it's just cool. But in this one, they're like, why doesn't he wear a parachute? He goes, because parachutes are for girls. And then jumps off the plane. <laughs> and you're like, hey, it's 40s Captain America. Yes. <laughs> and now he's going to go down and he's probably saying some really horrible things to those Nazis. But they deserve it because they're Nazis and therefore it's justifiable. As a comedian, and I guess... I don't know. There's a certain interesting part to it for me as well, because like, I think maybe you might have a different perspective on this being from Scotland, from the UK, that I think to an outsider, there's a lot of Scottish people are very funny. And that's like a, a big piece of the culture. So I'm curious, just like in general about like you growing up around probably a bunch of funny people and saying, I want to be a professionally funny. And like, if you have any thoughts on like the timeline between like when you started that journey, when you decided you wanted to go into stand-up, when you decided that like that was your passion. And if there was any crossover between that and your interest in comics, and were you drawn to comics that were funny or was there any kind of creative crossover or influence or cross-pollination there or anything like that? Uh, definitely, right. So, I mean, when I was at the Edinburgh Fringe and my publicist was taking me to comic book shops and he got me The Killing Joke. And the reason I became obsessed with The Killing Joke is because in it, the Joker is a comedian before he becomes the Joker. And I think that's such a testament to comedians that were all one bad day from becoming mass murdering psychopaths. <laughs> uh, like, so it, man, it resonates with me so much. When I was... Listeners, Daniel is taking off his shirt to show a Joker tattoo. 
<laughs> so it's the, I mean, like Alma is the choker I have on on my back. I mean, nowadays it's a bit incelly, and you know, but I I got yeah. it back in like 2009, so it was pre-incel stuff. I remember just because I, yeah, I I had to get lots of trains to places to gig and to go do five sports and. You know, when you're on the train in Scotland, you don't always get signal on your phone. And this was before smartphones were brilliant. So I did. I used to just buy comic books and then sit down on the train. And my dad loved it because he was able to just get like all of his old ones that he would desperately try and get me into. And we'd, you know, do something much like this afterwards. You know, I'd come home and we'd discuss how my gig went and how much we enjoyed the graphic novels. Humour is obviously a very important thing to me, but the thing I really liked about so many of these graphic novels is they do something very similar, which is, you know, I love the fact that when a superhero is getting his head kicked in, like the good ones like Iron Man and Spider-Man, they're still funny. Like even when they're being downtrodden, even when they're getting their ass absolutely handed to them, they're still funny. And I love that because like, I, I think laughter is the most defiant thing in the world. It's one of the most powerful actions. Like the reason why I think it's important to, you know, laugh when you're grieving is because it's the only thing that will get you out of it because it's just this powerful, defiant action. And seeing all my favorite superheroes do it is exciting. I remember I used to, I wish I still had it, but like I used to take down like notes of like the funniest lines from each comic book that I liked and would then go home and talk to my dad about them. (laughs) That rules. And it feels very human. Too, yes. To like, you know, as you say, laugh in the face of all this to be that defiant, you know, it just it feels very natural. And I think that's one of the, the charms of the Marvel heroes who are a little bit quippier. You know, they use that humor as a weapon. They use it as a defense mechanism. Like that's who we are as people. That's what we do. That's why it feels like it comes across so naturally. Yeah. You had mentioned that you were at the Fringe Festival and and you had been pulled to go get some comic books. I've only been to Edinburgh once and I loved it. Loved it. I have to go back. One, where's the comic shop in Edinburgh? And two, when you are, you know, performing and doing gigs and, you know, maybe traveling with other comedians, do you have like a coworker, so to speak, who is a comic book fan that you can chat with? The comic book shop in Edinburgh. I don't know if you, have you ever heard of a British television show called Black Books? Yeah. Right. So if you've seen it, it's about uh, Dylan Moran is this comedian and he plays this like drunk bookshop owner who is terrible at his job as a bookshop owner. He based that character and that pretty much that entire story is based off a comic book shop in Edinburgh <laughs> called Deadhead Comics, which is like down on the way to Grass Market. And every time you go in, man, none of the things are labeled to their price. Like I remember going in like and getting like the new Walking Dead graphic novel. And I'm like, how much is this? And he goes, how much does it say? And I'm like, it doesn't <laughs> say. And he goes, um, all right, let's go 20 quid. And I was like, but the last one was 15. He's like, I know, but this one's really good. So 20. <laughs> and you're like, all right, okay. I guess this is just a... And he was great for recommendations. And he would just play World of Warcraft the entire time you were in the store. Like he wouldn't pay any attention to you. Like it was just, he would give you recommendations and then guess the prices of the comics. And they moved, and now I think he's up near a place called the Three Sisters. Still there, I still go in. And then we've got a chain in the UK called Forbidden Planet. I was very excited when that opened up in Edinburgh because it meant there was just such a huge selection. And then when I'm on tour, my tour support and my best friend uh, for the past 10 years is a guy called Kai Humphreys. 
when we were touring together, he got me into the UFC and I got him into comic books. And it was like this trade-off <laughs> that we did. Like he wanted somebody to stay up late and watch grown men beat each other up. And I needed someone to read Lock and Key. So I had something, <laughs> something to talk about while we were on the road. And now he's like, it's really good because I still enjoy the UFC, but he regularly just downloads and reads comic books. Like before, you know, any of the Marvel movie comes out, he'll always download and just read a bunch just to get himself uh, into the world. And it's great. When I always get very excited because he's, he's older, right? he's like 38. I got him into comics when he was 34 years old. Good time to start. Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. I know in, in the U.S. with American comics, and obviously you have a much better perspective on this than I do, Daniel, hanging out in that crowd, whether we're talking to British, Scottish comedians, or American, that there is a healthy crossover in terms of like comics and comedy. Well, I don't know if it started there, but it was certainly like in Los Angeles, there was the Nerd Melt. Like they did gigs in the back of the comic book shops. And I always remember that was such a, I loved those gigs. Like we'd go down there. And Emily Gordon used to run a bunch of them and she knew I loved comic books and she would just give me a bunch at the end of the show. And and it's very funny because now, obviously, like Kumail, who we performed with back then and is a big, big nerd, is now in the Eternals and he's ripped and he's like, oh, Marvel. <laughs> it's so cool. I don't know if it all comes from there, but like for me, that was my, you know, there's no comic book shop gigs in the UK. Like mm. I remember coming to Los Angeles, I was like, it's very nerdy, but it's so nerdy that it's cool. Like, I can't believe you can just get away with it. There's enough of a culture here. And I loved it. Yeah. Where are some of your favorite places to play? I mean, you mentioned playing in a comic book shop to perform there seems like a lot of fun, but you've kind of been all around the world, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do everywhere from like Russia to Hong Kong to Singapore. Uh, I do all of Europe, like Lithuania and Iceland and Estonia to Australia and the States. I mean, I, I love doing comedy everywhere. Like, I think comedy is truly universal unless you're doing political stuff or you're bad at it. <laughs> I, I love gigging in America. You know, I love making fun of Americans because you're very easy to make fun of and you do yes. take it so very personally. Yeah. But I think you're such an incredibly comedically intelligent audience. And it's because of the fact that you've had stand-up here for so long and, you know, most of the best comedies made when both TV and movies are made here. We've still got excellent stuff in the UK, obviously, and Australia produces some good stuff, but most of it comes from the, the States. And because you're just consuming comedy all the time, it means, you know, we can make fun of Americans for, you know, the stereotype of them being stupid or whatever, but comedically, suave, understanding, like you get the idiosyncrasies, you get the sarcasm and the nuance, and it's really fun to perform here because it's the capsule of comedy. So few British comedians have you know, made it in America. So I always consider myself extremely lucky at the fact that I get to come over here and perform to you big idiots. <laughs> On that note, when you're in Lithuania or when you're in Brisbane or wherever you might be, I know you're probably on like a whirlwind tour. You're probably in some of these places for less than 24 hours, but do you ever find yourself looking for comic shops in these places? Yeah, yeah. First time I went to Sydney, I was desperately looking for comic books and I don't think I found one. I think I could just find them in like the bookstores there. And then I think Melbourne's got some good. Oh, Melbourne definitely does. We've got a really good tradition. Do you know the comedy group Anti Donna at all? Yeah. Right. Because me and Mark uh, Bonanno from uh, Anti Donna, we had this tradition every year in Melbourne. We would go to a comic book shop 
and we would buy each other a comic book. Like we would buy each other our favorite graphic novel, and then we would go to a coffee shop and we would sit down and just read each other's favorite graphic novel in front of each other every year. <laughs> that may be the most romantic thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Man, it's it's great. We didn't do it last time. I think we tried because, like, I was in Melbourne for just a bit, and like Auntie Donna have have blown up rightfully after so many years. I'm fairly happy for them, but yeah, me and Mark, I want to keep that tradition going. Mark Bonanno is one of those people. Like, I've been a fan of Auntie Donna for years and years and years, like ten years. Yeah, before they were cool. Exactly. I love to make that claim, and but specifically, I like to make it because I remember like spotting Mark Bonanno's iconic visage and profile and beard, like in the back at the UCB Theater here in New York one day, and this is pre Netflix and pre everything, and I was too nervous. I was too nervous to go up to say <laughs> him and say, "Hey, I know you're Mark Bonanno. I know all your work." Um, <laughs> Oh man, you, you should have told him he's the he's, like, he's, he's the biggest sweetheart in the entire world. Like, oh yeah, there's, I don't think I've seen him be cruel to anyone. <laughs> it always comes back to you in the UCB theater, Tucker. You know, thinking about UCB and sort of improv and sketch shows and stuff like that. For you, Daniel, is there like comedy that you go back to for inspiration, or you know, when you're thinking about, hey, I want to, I'm a new special, or is it just like? pulling from your life or pulling from thoughts do, do you go back and like you know we talk to a lot of writers and stuff and and, and creatives of, of different brands and media and they're like yeah i'll watch this movie or listen to this song or put on this record or read this comic or this book to get the juices flowing i watch i mean i, I love stand-up and i consume it at such a high rate i love bo burnham's what i will watch that maybe three or four times a year i just think it's a masterpiece and Bo Burnham is the reason that for only one month a year am I the greatest comedian my age, because he is one month older than me. So, like, he turns he turns thirty two in August, and then for one whole month, I'm the greatest thirty one year old comic on the planet. And then I turn thirty two, and then it's all over again. And it's back to being him. I love watching his stuff. I love I love the way his mind works, and it's such intelligent comedy. And I find that very inspiring. And then another one is man Adam Sandler's last special on Netflix. Because I grew up with Adam Sandler, like watching all of his movies, and like some of them are brilliant and some of them aren't. But even his bad ones don't make me hate him at all. And then he released a stand-up special, and because I'd not seen him do stand-up before, I was just like, "Oh man, like don't, you know, don't do this. Like I don't want, I don't want to see you doing, you know, this badly." And, yeah, I, and I completely forgot that he used to be a stand-up. And as if you've seen his special, but for like the first five minutes that you're watching it, you're just like, "Oh man, this is so stupid." And then for the next 50 minutes, you're like, oh, this is so stupid. Like, it's all, man, he, he just wants to make people laugh. It's just silly jokes, silly songs, like him being an idiot and having fun on stage. And I love watching that special so much because it reminds me not to take this job seriously. Like, you can do beautifully intelligent comedy, the likes of which, you know, Bo Barnum and Tim Minchin do. You can do superbly dark comedy that's, to the point like Michelle Wolf and, and Anthony Jeselnik and stuff. But ultimately, you can still also just do silly jokes just to make people laugh. And that's ultimately what we're all doing. And you don't need to take anything more seriously than that. And then, oh, yeah, I, I, Michelle Wolf's last special, the one, her one on Netflix, I watched that a lot just because I think it's 
it's just such superb writing that she does and the way she flips so many arguments on their heads. I just find it inspirational. I could still tell you Michelle Wolf's lunch order, having been the writer's intern at late night with Seth Meyers from when oh, Michelle yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, to dive back into Ultimates, to go from that to the thing that we're supposed to be talking about here. When we go from the beginning of this run through issues three, five, seven, through the, through to the end, one great W cameo <laughs> oh, there. Man. George W. Bush pops up in, in, yes, up in, I saw in, in issue number three. Because <laughs> I, I, I was looking at it today and I was like, I, I was zooming in. I'm like, is that? Yeah, no, that's him. <laughs> Which I, I love. And I think I'm sure that if one was writing a like an academic breakdown of Mark Miller's work, like there's something there just in terms of him grounding things so in reality and reminding you that, you know, he's placing this in the real world, I think is fascinating. But when you think back on this book, what moments stand out to you? Like, do you remember like, oh, this is a big action set piece that I remember loving. This is a moment in the book that when you think back on it, even if it's been years since you've read it, immediately come to mind. Yeah, like later on when I can't remember the name of the bad guys coming down from space, but like Captain America just sex Hulk on them. Like, and it's literally like, go get them. And just I was like, <laughs> okay, I'll do it. And just loses his mind. And I'm just like, but it's, you know, it's, it's another like puny God moment where there's very few greater moments in any comic book than when Hulk just loses it in the most Hulk way because he's just so powerful and just such a badass. And then also, man, I love, I, I really, really did love every one of Captain America's fights with Red Skull. It's a barroom brawl, but just with much higher stakes. But like, if you were to take the exact fight and you were to put it in a pub with two people drinking, it, it, <laughs> oh yeah, they're just, it's an old 1940s fifty cuffs, let's beat each other's heads in. And I, I love that so much. Yeah. Tucker, what you were talking about with the W cameo, but it's also like Larry King is in here, Shannon Elizabeth, there's the Freddie Prince Jr. stuff. And it's something that we at Marvel, it's always been grounded in pop culture and references. You know, David Letterman has shown up in comics. The Saturday Night Live cast has shown up in comics. You know, the Beatles showed up in Fantastic Four. They referenced Robert Downey Jr. in this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so for me, it's a double-edged sword of like, those things are great. And as you're reading them, especially if you're reading it around the time it releases, it's fun. It feels like current and, and very of the moment. But then, you know, now we're almost 20 years removed from the initial release of these stories. There's like, it does date them a little bit, which is fine. I think it makes them a cool little like, you know, time capsule in some ways, but it's still so, this story is so timeless and like you can pull out those things and it could be like a comic that just came out this week and it's it's so damn good yeah i agree in the first six issues there's two other key things i wanted to touch on which is thor and then the hank pym and the wasp stuff because the hank pym and the wasp stuff touching on like the domestic abuse connections that had been established years and years prior in the main Marvel universe. And here it's really disturbing at the end of the story of what Hank does to Janet and the path that that goes down. And then the way that they use Thor is so cool of like just this big old hippie and like, maybe he's a god. 
like he lives in a commune. Yeah. Like you can tell he was he was smoking just before you turned up. And also, man, I really like the fact that like for a fair bit of the comic book, you're like, is he Thor? Like, or is he just a really buff Norwegian guy that's losing his mind? I I, I think that was such a because you're like, oh, that's definitely him. Is it? Because he's not done anything. Yeah, <laughs> but then he comes in and like they completely change the hammer. The hammer design comes in, and that one panel—it might be a full-page splash of him coming down, the lightning crackling up. Paul Mount's doing an amazing job coloring it. Brian Hitch having him just smash down the Hulk is—that's a moment right there. Yeah, I mean, anytime they fight amongst each other, and that was a thing I always remember. The reason I was so desperate to find what Civil War was was I was like, hold on, you're telling me there's there's just a, there's a storyline where they all beat each other up. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> it's great watching your heroes fight bad guys, but it's also so good when they find an excuse to kick each other's heads in. Like, that's the <laughs> most. Because that's the debate you're always having. It's could this person beat this person, and it's nice to, you know, see in action. And Thor and Hulk have had so many good fights over the years. Like, I, I can't remember which animated one it was, but the one where, like, Hulk literally punches Thor through a mountain. Like, that's <laughs> on, like in one side of the mountain, out the other side, and opposite bit. It was like, oh, that part. And you're like, man, this is great. And this is another one where, you know, there's many excuses for them all to fight uh, Hulk because obviously Bruce isn't having the, the best time and he's the hardest one to take down. So I love reading that. Please take a second and tell people about Hubris. Oh, yeah. I've got a book that's out. It's called Everyone You Hate Is Going To Die. It's a self-help book and it's very positive, as the title <laughs> suggests. And I'm on tour. If you go to danielsloss.com, you can find all my stuff there. And please, for the love of God, before you come and see me live, watch my stuff on Netflix. I do not have time for you to just take a risk on my stand-up, come out, <laughs> hear me say a bunch of horrible things, and then go, ah, do your research. Uh, like, Don't waste your money and don't waste my time. <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. We should have you back talk about something of a more yes, recent please. vintage. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on, Daniel. This is awesome. Cheers, man. Thank you once more to Daniel for joining us to talk about Ultimates. I always love not only to get a super fan's perspective on something like that, which obviously Daniel is, but also to just get like an international reader's perspective. That's something I'm always deeply fascinated by. A wonderful salute to that and a wonderful salute to Ultimates. Heck yeah. All right, that wraps it up for us. Welcome to December, everybody. This episode of Marvel's Fullest was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Polis Audio Development Manager. And the last time Brad took a vacation, he had his out-of-office on. And the note in his out-of-office just said, taking it full Scotsman. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant, Brad, but I'm here for it. Do you, kid. <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.